So let me pray. Father, as we um, come to think about your word, we, we pray for your help. We pray for um, just a growing appreciation of all that you uh, have done, continue to do. Um, we thank you for your mercy and grace uh, throughout all of uh, human history and even up until this day towards us. And uh, we just pray for your strength. We pray for a good time of fellowship today as uh, your people. And uh, we pray that we would be uh, doers of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in Numbers chapter 5. So Numbers chapter 5. And just a reminder of where we're at, this will be a little bit briefer reminder than last time, but um, you'll remember in the the storyline of the Bible, we have um, God promising salvation, right? Because a man and woman fell into sin, he promises salvation back in Genesis 3, and then the whole time we're looking for this offspring that's going to come to bring salvation. We see that that goes to, um, well, Noah and then to Abraham, right? We see Abraham gets pretty big promises made to him. So Abraham's a pretty central figure in the first five books, really the entire Bible. Um, But the first five books being foundational to the entire Bible, we see Abraham pretty central there. We see promises that are being made. uh, uh, We see from the very beginning, really, what we're, we're looking for is God's people being in God's place with God's perfect presence, right? Which includes his rule, because his rule is good. Uh, he's a good ruler, he's a good king, um, but they want his presence. And that, that's the way it starts out, and then through sin, they lose that, and then the rest of redemption is, how's that going to be regained? And it's going to come through this offspring. And so uh, through Abraham, eventually, will come the savior of the entire world. So Jesus is going to be coming through that line, right? Uh, through Abraham, Abraham becomes I- the nation of Israel. Through the nation of Israel, we're going to have Jesus eventually come. So in Numbers... Um, where are we at at the beginning of Numbers? Does anyone remember where, where the Israelites are? Sinai, that's right. So they're still at the foot of Sinai. And um, just prior to that, does anyone remember where they were? They were in Egypt, and they had been enslaved, right, for about 400 years. They'd been slaves in Egypt. And so they uh, come out of Egypt, and they are redeemed by God. You'll remember, we're going to talk about this briefly later, but um, you remember the big event that God uses to get them out of Egypt is called what? I'm going to say Passover. I thought I heard that. Exodus? Yeah, so Passover and then the Exodus that immediately follows that, right? This this coming out of that follows, which includes, you know, parting of the Red Sea, which is pretty huge. Um, You know, so all those things are going to play pretty pretty big roles throughout the entire Bible. I mean, over and over again, you're going to see things about Passover. You're going to see how Jesus ultimately fulfills the Passover, right? He is the Passover lamb, uh, the one whose blood covers the people so that the angel of death or the death that we deserve passes over us, right? Instead of falling on us. Um, when you think about Exodus, you're going to see over and over again pointers back to that, right? Um, God talks about how he calls his son out of Egypt, and he's referring to Israel. Well, guess what? When Jesus, does Jesus end up in Egypt? Yes, Yes, Jesus ends up in Egypt, right? And then he comes out, and then it says, this was to fulfill the prophecy that I have called my son out of Egypt, right? So we see that, that Jesus is ultimately even what Israel is foreshadowing, right? That doesn't mean Israel isn't a real nation. It doesn't mean there aren't real promises to that nation, there are. My, my point is, there's also this spiritual reality. Both those things are happening, right? Um, 
And so that's, that's pretty incredible. So kind of getting a little wrapped up in the storyline here, but the point is they're, they, they're at Mount Sinai. They've been given the law. They built the tabernacle. So God is with them, right? God, he's given them their law, his law. That's good. He, he's going to be with them in the tabernacle. We saw how Leviticus really showed us how that's going to work because they're still sinful. There's got to be sacrifices that are going to be made to cleanse them. And so God makes a way in the book of Leviticus. And now in the book of Numbers, the one thing we're still really lacking is being in God's place, right? We have God's presence, but they're not in God's place. The land that God had promised to Abraham, right? We saw that back in in Genesis. So they're going to go to the land, but they've got to get ready to go to the land. And the book of Numbers is really focusing on two different generations. That first generation that comes out of uh, Egypt, and that's chapters 1 through 25, and they will show a abysmal lack of faith. They are going to fail badly, and they will not enter the land, but God will be faithful, and he will bring the offspring of Abraham into the land. God is going to be faithful to his promises despite the faithlessness, you could say, of Israel. And so that's the first generation. That's, what, that's the section we're in right now. Um, we haven't gotten to their unfaithfulness yet. We're just getting to all the instructions about this is how you're going to travel with, with God being among you. That's a pretty big deal, right? They got to figure that out and God's got to tell them what that's going to look like. Uh, The next section that we're not going to get to for a little while is going to be chapters 26 through 30. That's the second generation and we're going to see examples of faithfulness. Now they still fail in a lot of ways, but they're going to be more obedient, more faithful to God. So we're in the middle of this first generation. We've been in chapters uh, one through five, one through six area. That's where we've been. We've seen that they're preparing, God's preparing the people, the camp, the tabernacle, all these things to travel so that God will go with his people. In chapter one, we saw the census of men ready for war. Why do they have to be ready for war? Yeah, they're going to go into the promised land and there are inhabitants that God is going to judge. And God said that 400 years prior to this. This is not, he's not just all of a sudden out of nowhere bringing this. This has been planned. These people are very wicked. Um, I mean, God could do that to any nation at any time, right? I mean, all of us deserve that. Um, so sometimes we think, well, that's unfair. Well, I mean, if you want fair, we all end up in hell. That's what fair is, right? And, um, and so that's, God has been very gracious. Uh, nonetheless, a day of judgment is coming. And so by judging these nations, he's also going to give the land that he promised to his people. Um, so that's where they're at. They have this census to get ready for war. There's an arrangement of the camp. How's everything going to function and, and fit around God's presence? He's going to be the center, the tabernacle. The king is in the midst of them. Um, which again, if you get to the end of the Bible storyline, what's the center of the new heavens and new earth? God's presence, right? The throne is right there in the middle. The river of life is flowing from the throne. Um, and so we have God being the center of his people there as well. That is the ultimate goal of the, the biblical storyline. Um, we see a census of the priests. We talked about that a little bit. We saw their job is to work and to keep the tabernacle area. Um, and then we started talking about purity within the camp. Hey, because if, listen, if God's going to be with you, he is holy, and there must be purity and holiness in the camp, uh, lest they die, right? We saw that in Leviticus over and over again, lest they die. This is what needs to happen. And uh, so it's pretty serious stuff. So we're going to pick back up in that section, because that's where we left off, the purity of the camp. And then we're going to move into chapter 7 through 10, Lord willing, and talk about the preparations for the tabernacle itself. Um, so that's where we're going, to, we're going to go. So any questions or thoughts before we go into this? That was a lot of review, but make sure everyone's on the same page. We good? All right. So we're, we're setting up for them to, to be able to move to the place, to God's place. So chapters 5 and 6, they're the, they need to consecrate the camp. In other words, they, they need to be fully set apart to God. And this involves several things uh, in terms of purity and holiness. And they, there's four areas that get addressed here. The first is in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. 
And uh, you'll remember, uh, well, I'll just go ahead and read a couple verses. The Lord said to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge, and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. So the focus is, God is dwelling in the middle of the camp. So there must be holiness, there must be purity. So um, what that means is, and Leviticus covers all this stuff about cleanliness, clean, cleanliness and uncleanliness. Um, uncleanness can be a result of sin, right? Um, but it can also just be a result of other things. And generally it involves somehow connecting with something that's in the realm of death rather than life, because God is a God of life. So a lot of the, the food laws deal with animals that eat other dead animals and junk, basically, right? Things that are dead and dying. That's not true for all the animals, so I don't know. I mean, there's probably other things going on in the food things. I'm not saying that's the only thing. But we know for sure a lot of those cleanliness laws deal, or at least one of them deals with death, which is touching a dead body, right? Because again, so is there anything sinful about having touched a dead body? I mean, not unless you're the one who murdered the person, right? That would be sinful, but for other reasons. But But what's the issue? You're not going to come in the realm of death and then immediately go into the realm of the God of life and think that, that there's not some sort of disconnect here. There's got to be a cleansing of that because he is the God who is holy and a God of life. Uh, so same thing with, with uh, blood discharges. That probably points to that same idea uh, because where's the life? The life is in the blood. Um, probably has to do with these, some of these skin diseases, right? You have dead skin flaking off, the idea of death again. That's probably what's going on, although I'm not gonna, that's not a hill I'm going to die on. I mean, there certainly are other things going on there too. But I, we definitely see that the main issue is God dwells in the camp. It's got to be a clean camp, right? Um, now, it is also important to recognize that these people who get put outside the camp, notice they're not, um, they're not kicked out of Israel altogether. They're just on the outskirts of the camp. They just can't be right in the center where the tabernacle is, right? So, so, there is, so we still see something of God's mercy. They're still considered part of the people of God, and they can become cleansed. Many of these things could be cleansed just by time and certain washings and things. Um, some of them, like, like certain leprosy and things, could be lifelong, but they could also be cured at times because we saw that the priests could come along and, and they would evaluate what's going on, and if the person is clean, they would declare them to be clean, right? Now, all this points to Jesus. We talked about this. Jesus uh, is the only priest who could actually touch people, and he himself is not made unclean. He makes them clean. Right? We saw that. We, we saw in the New, the New Testament um, that no one who is unclean, remember Revelation, I think it's 21, no one who is unclean will enter the new heavens and new earth. Jesus makes us clean, but how? He goes, Hebrews 13, he goes outside of the camp, right? Where the unclean would be, he goes outside of the camp and dies the death that is pictured by all of our uncleanness for us. So that by his blood, we can be cleansed and no longer be the unclean, and the ungodly, we can be cleansed and enter into the, the kingdom of God. Um, so that was Revelation uh, 21, 27, and then Hebrews 13, 12 that I just referenced. Okay, well, we spent more time on that last time, so I'm not going to continue to go over that. Um, this, is, this part is just review because we covered this last time. The second uh, thing we see is they must rightly relate to others. Um, if they're going to have a, a consecration of being set apart to God, that also involves the way they relate to one another. So in, in verses 5 through 10, what we see of chapter 5 is, um, listen, they're going to mess up. There's going to be, people are going to sin against each other in the camp. They have to go to their brother or sister and make restitution when they sin against them, right? You take something, you get tempted, you take something that doesn't belong to you, you need to confess it and go make restitution. There's got to be a, uh, if, if they're going to be consecrated to God, their relationships with one another matter. 
They can't just be characterized by selfishness and stealing and me first and all these other ideas. Now, this is not communism, right? I mean, they all own their different animals. It's, it's not just, hey, everybody owns everything. Um, but the point is, there, there's true unity and harmony among God's people. That's true in the New Testament, right? If you go to worship God and you recognize your brother has something against you or you have something against your brother, what are you supposed to do? Do you just carry on with worship as if there's nothing wrong? No, God cares about that relationship. You go make it right. As much as it depends on you, you seek to live at peace with all men. And that especially would apply to fellow Christians, right? Because we, we have Christ in common. Of all people, we ought to be able to forgive one another, right? Doesn't mean every Christian is going to be your best friend necessarily, but we ought to be able to forgive and love one another. Okay, so that again is review from last time. Now we're going to pick up with a new section here. Uh, any questions though on those first two parts of consecrating the camp? We have two more parts of consecrating the camp. We good? Okay. Third, there must be fidelity or purity um, within marriages. There must be trust within marriages. So in this section, we have a test that is given to reveal either the guilt or the innocence of a woman who is living in such a way that she is suspected by her husband of having committed adultery. So in this case, there is no proof that it, adultery has been committed, but there is a suspicion of it. And so God gives a very unique um, ritual to the Israelites. Um, this is not a New Testament ritual, I don't think, but it, it is in the Old Covenant because we don't have the temple the way they do in the tabernacle. Um, but God is, think about it, God is the only one who would have known if adultery had happened or not in a case where there is no proof, no evidence. But the, the main point, I think, is marriages are very important if the people are set apart to God. I mean, they're very important for society as a whole, right? I mean, you can see the breakdown of marriage causes all sorts of problems. Um, but they're important to the people of God, and uh, especially the issue of adultery strikes right at the heart of marriage. And so, um, so that's, a, that's a pretty pretty big deal here. So God is going to give them this ritual, which essentially is an acted-out prayer is what it is. It's a prayer, but done in a ritual form that gives a picture of uh, if, where the woman is basically saying, look, if I have committed adultery, may God curse me, Right? And if the curse doesn't come upon her, then the suspicion needs to be dropped. In other words, the guy needs to realize, you know what? God has shown that she is innocent despite all of your suspicions and all these other things, and you all need to move on, okay? So um, Numbers 5, verses 11 through 14. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it has been hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act. And if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself. So that whole first section is basically assuming there was adultery. There's just no evidence, right? Here, and here's the second uh, piece to it. Or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself. The point is there's no witness. There's no way to know for sure unless the, the all-seeing God gives the evidence. He is the witness who gives testimony in court, right? That's basically what we're being told. So marriage fidelity is very important in the camp if the camp is going to be set apart. Um, another reason marriage is uh, so important is because what does marriage point to beyond just the human institution? Christ in the church. So ultimately, Christ in the church. That's right. And so even back in Genesis, it does. In the Old Covenant, um, how does God often refer, or the prophets speaking for God, often refer to Israel when they are uh, unfaithful, in, when you get later on in Israel's history? Adulterous, right? Prostituting, that type. Of, I mean, it's all, it's all this stuff like you have gone astray from the Lord. You, you were married to the Lord, and you have 
betrayed him through your unfaithfulness. You have went after other gods, and that is the same as doing as committing adultery spiritually, right? Um, so, th- so this is all. I mean, this is all built into the storyline, right? So this is another reason why the issue of adultery within Israel is going to be a huge deal, right? And, and it needs to be rooted out. So what follows is this test then. They, they, there's this test that's given or this ritual that's done to show if the wife is guilty or innocent. Um, it's basically an elaborate ritual and prayer. Here's what happens. I'm not going to read through all the details. Uh, you can go back and read it on your own, but I will just give you the outline here. The priest takes holy water, adds dust from the floor of the tabernacle, um, which I think probably is meant to just indicate this is coming from God's place. Um, I mean, think about what happens if you go into God's place and you are defiled, right? Um, death will come upon you. Um, so I think he takes that this little bit of this dust, sprinkles it in there to show that, listen, this is coming from the holy God, and if you are defiled, he will judge you, right? Um, again, that's not a hill I'm going to die on, because I don't know for sure, but I think that's probably what's going on there. He writes a curse that will come upon her if she is guilty and washes, um, I, I guess, the ink or whatever into the uh, water as well. She drinks it if she is guilty. Let's look down at verses uh, 21 through 22. Then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, amen, amen. So she's basically in, she's in agreement. If I have done this thing, may this curse come on me, right? Uh, May I essentially be childless and probably even die. It's kind of what the curse is. So think about this. If, if This really is a test of faith, is it not? Because if you really believe the one true God who sees everything, knows what happened, and you committed adultery, to make this pronouncement, I mean, that's a big deal. Because essentially, you're, you're saying it believing God is going to do this to me if, if I'm lying. He sees everything, right? Um, and if you're innocent you would say it with, with a sense of the Lord will vindicate me, right? Because again, you believe the one true God is going to do what he said. Um, so you can see how this would really root out infidelity in Israel, right? Um, you would have, and you would not, uh, there would be a guardedness even among male and female relationships in Israel so that we don't even raise a suspicion of adultery being committed, right? Um, Matthew Henry says this, I thought this was helpful. He says, the law would make the woman of Israel watch against giving cause for suspicion. On the other hand, so that's one thing it would do. On the other hand, it would hinder the cruel treatment such suspicions might occasion. You can imagine in the flesh how if suspicion went unchecked and there's no way for her to be vindicated and there's no evidence, what are you going to do? You could see how in the flesh you could have a sinful man be cruel to his wife, right? When no proof could be brought, the wife was called on to make this solemn appeal to a heart-searching God. No woman, if she were guilty, could say amen to the adjuration of verse 22, that's what we just read, and drink the water after it, unless she disbelieved the truth of God or defiled his justice. So um, we have this ritual, just real quick point out, um, there's nothing magical about this ritual. It's, I think it's, it's a lot like the sacrifices. The sacrifices in and of themselves, it's not like there's magic in there. You know, you make the sacrifice, and even if you're disbelieving, right, it'll, it'll have its effect. It's, this isn't magic. This is, they're, they're demonstrating faith in God. I think the same thing is happening through this vis- ritualized prayer. There's nothing magical in the water, but God himself will bring judgment if there needs to be judgment, and he will bring vindication where there needs to be vindication. I think that's what's happening in this section.
Is there a similar <coughs> test for an unfaithful husband? No, there's not. And so I wondered about that. I, I, think, um, I think the answer, though, is, I think the answer is, um, number one, if, if, if this is in law, both men and women are going to do a lot to avoid any appearance of adultery, especially married women, who are the more vulnerable, right, to, to maybe being led astray. Um, and then secondly, in terms of power dynamics, you have the men are going to have a lot more power, right, in general, rightly so in the sense that they're to lead their, their wives, but also sometimes wrongly so in the sense that they may just have more power, that they can be cruel to somebody, their wife, if they just have the suspicion that goes unchecked. Whereas if, if the suspicion went the other way, there wouldn't be as much um, cruelty, perhaps, right? So, so this is a way to also protect women, I think, through this, this law. I just would have thought that being an unfaithful husband, that would be a bigger problem. Right. Yeah. No, and, and, and I agree. Yeah, no, I agree. And you will remember that the, the Old Testament law for adultery is death, both man and woman, if you're caught in adultery, right? It's 2010. You, you have it pulled up? or? Yeah, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress, must be put to death. Yep. Good. So yeah, we have to remember that this doesn't change that unyielding standard. This is for a special situation where we're saying we're going to maintain purity, and there are going to be times where there's going to be suspicion, and no, there's no witness, there's no evidence, right, like you have in, in that Exodus passage. Um, so yes, but that is a very good question. I wanted the same thing. I think that Matthew Henry comment, comment is what helped me think that through a little bit. Um, so yeah, it's a good question. Any other questions? This is like uh, counseling. Okay. They got a bigger problem than... Right. Yes. There's a core problem in their marriage. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah, and you can see how, I mean, in a lot of ways, this, this really should guard from an appearance of adultery. Whenever you have something that's going to be more of a public issue, even on the suspicion of it, um, you know, a holy woman in Israel is going to be much more guarded. She's not going to be living in a way that appears to cast suspicion, um, which would obviously affect the men too, because the men will not be in positions, right, that are going to look like that either. So, yeah. Any other questions? All right. Uh, let's go on. The fourth thing about being having the consecrated camp is there's going to be some people who will, uh, in, a, in a small microcosm, picture the fact that the entire camp is set apart for God's purposes. Besides the priest, it could be that any Israelite could, could function in a way that's set apart. They can't do the role of the priest, but they can be set apart to God in a special way similar to the priest. Um, and this is the Nazarite vow. So the Nazarite vow, chapter 6, look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. And then it's going to go on and talk about what that's going to look like. Let's stop and say, okay, what is a Nazarite? You might have a footnote in your Bible. Um, the ESV does. It says uh, one separated or consecrated. So they are set apart for special purposes to God. That's what that means, right? It's kind of like you have, the, you have unclean, you have kind of common right? Things that are, they're not necessarily unclean, but they're just common use. And then you've got the holy and set apart things, right? So um, things could be set apart through processes to holiness. People, like the priest, had to, had to have that happen to them, right? That's why they can't really come in contact with even dead bodies, because they don't want to go back this direction, because they have to be in the tabernacle, they have to be ministering. Well, even people in Israel, if they take this Nazarite vow, they can, they can be set apart and move more into this 
wholly set apart category for a particular purpose. We're not necessarily told what that is here. It probably was things like maybe they made a, a thank vow, a vow of thanksgiving, Lord. Um, I, I vow to set myself apart for special purposes um, for a particular time period out of thankfulness to you for what, whatever it might have been. Um, it, it could just be, um, now there are some lifelong um, Nazarite um, folks, it's, at least it seems like there are, like um, Samuel seems to kind of fit into that category. His mom sets him apart and then the whole rest of his days he's supposed to be set apart. Samson was supposed to be a Nazarite. Um, I think he violates every single principle that we're going to see in a minute of what a Nazarite should be. And so we, we get a good lesson of God's grace and working through very sinful humans, right? Um, so um, there was one other person, I can't remember who it is, uh, that they mentioned. But anyway, um, John the Baptist, someone pointed out John the Baptist. Uh, what about Samson? Was... Yeah, yeah. yeah, so Samson, yeah, but he violates like every... Everything that... A yeah, but he but he does take the Nazarite vow, right? I mean, so his, his hair gets cut off. We're going to see that in a second. He drinks wine. He touches dead carcasses. He kills a lot of people. Um, you know, I mean, the Lord uses him. Um, and, and we are told that there's... Uh, we see some semblance of, of faith in Samson in Hebrews, right? You want to make your head spin? Go read Hebrews and think about how to work that out, right? Yeah. Oh, and also uh, this was up to part C, actually. Going that, that, that I also uh, uh, King David could have been stoned. Yes. For that. That's right. Yes. Yes. He, he could have. Yeah. And he and Bathsheba both. That's right. Probably should have been, but yeah. By God's grace, they were not. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so we do see that that uh, the the penalties of breaking the law don't always get carried out, right? Yeah. So um, that's grace, I guess, not to carry out the yeah. penalty of the law. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it can be grace. Um, I will have mercy on who I have mercy. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah. In our pride, that rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it? Um, okay. So separate and consecrate. Separate appears 11 times in these verses, talking about Nazarites. Consecrate five times. So you get the idea. Separated. Consecrated. Set apart to God. Um, a couple things that the, I already pointed this out, but I'll just read a couple verses here to show you what characterizes this vow. Verse three, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. So it goes on and talks about he's supposed to avoid everything related that could even be possibly related to wine. Verse five, all the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed uh, for which his, his separation uh, separates himself to the Lord. Um, verse six, all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his mother, father, brother, sister. Um, so, and then verse eight, all the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. So again, there's this setting apart, right? There, there's this uh, complete consecration and setting apart. In this way, it's similar to the way the priest would be consecrated. Um, so, so in some function, there's, there's a way that, yes, you can't fill the role of a priest because you're not given that role, but you can experience something of, of being set apart to God in this unique way even as a normal Israelite. And that's true of men and women. It says that at the beginning. This Nazarite vow could be taken by men or women. Um, <clears throat> so perhaps for a time of extended worship, perhaps for a vow of thanksgiving. Wenham writes this, tying the, the last section and this section together. He says, a marriage symbolized the relationship between God and Israel. So we just saw that. So the Nazarites epitomized the holy calling of the nation. So think about it, you have both things pictured, right? You have over and over again, you're going to be like this kingdom of priests idea, right? And we see that very clearly in the New Testament that the new covenant believers are kingdom of priests. Um, so in some, there's, a, there's a bunch of shadows being cast forward in the storyline here, right? The Nazarite vow is kind of picturing a kingdom of priests. God's people are supposed to be set apart to him. 
So in the new covenant, we are all supposed to be set apart to God. Now those particulars of the Nazarite vow, I'm not saying that is what applies to us. I'm saying what that pictured still applies, that we are set apart to God as God's people. Even though we may play different roles in the body of Christ, right? Um, I mean, think about uh, Romans 12, living sacrifice, right? Um, holy, set apart. Uh, same thing with marriage. So, so marriage pictures Christ and the church. The, those physical realities are there, but the spiritual shadow that's cast is there too. We ought not be like unfaithful Israel when they continually went astray and committed spiritual adultery, right? We ought to be pure and set apart as a bride is set apart for Christ. Uh, so these, these are callings for us, and we're going to see that this, this generation fails. And uh, remember, the New Testament it intentionally goes back to numbers over and over again. It says, don't be like Israel in numbers, right? That our calling is to be holy and set apart to God. So they, we've seen what they need to do to consecrate the camp. Now we're going to talk about the blessing. All this is, the goal is really to have God's blessing on the people and all this setting apart, all the things they're doing. Um, they want this relationship with God. So look at Numbers 6, 22 through 27. We have a benediction here, a blessing that is given. It says, the, verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them. Um, here's what he's going to say. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Okay, so what gets repeated there? Bless. Bless. So we see blessing, right? Which is the idea of a kind of a, a making genuinely joyful. You could say happy, but sometimes happy gets misunderstood. But the point is, genuinely deep down joy and even a happiness that is seated in something more than just circumstances. Um, what else? What else gets repeated? The Lord. The Lord. That's right. So a couple things we get from this then. One is um, every blessing comes from God, right? Ultimately, I think that's one thing we're seeing. Because every blessing begins with the Lord. The Lord do this, the Lord do this, the Lord do this. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing we see is that the ultimate blessing is in fact a right relationship that comes from God and with God. Because that's the whole point. If you look further down, it says causes face to shine upon you. That's the idea of like sunlight, the warming, joy-producing, life-giving sunlight. May he cause his face to shine upon you in that way, right? Because all blessing, and again, you get to the revelation and what do we have? We don't even need to sun or moon because we have what? God's presence among us. He is the light by which we live. Um, may he lift up his countenance upon you. This idea of looking at you with favor and blessing. So you get the point. The, every blessing comes from the Lord, and the blessing ultimately is the presence of the Lord. Does that make sense? You see both those things happening here. Um, now, there are some, some things that come from the blessing of the Lord. One is that he would keep you, that is to guard you. Um, that could be physical protection, certainly spiritual protection against uh, falsehood. Uh, be gracious to you. That means give what is needed. So forgiveness, help, provision, and then give you peace. The word there is shalom, which is more than just an absence of conflict. It is really a total well-being, right? A, a, you might think restoration of pre-fall conditions. I mean, that's ultimately what shalom is. That's what you think of shalom, think of the garden before sin. That's kind of what we're talking about, right? So again, that's really the goal, isn't it? God's presence bringing his perfect place to his people, that they may dwell among his perfect presence. So that's the blessing that they are to give. Um, notice it comes after all this being set apart to God, the people are to live as, as a people that can be blessed by God because they can live in God's place. Um, 
So we're going to move into chapter 7 through 10 now, and we're going to see they're getting ready to move the tabernacle. So there's a lot of things that have to happen in getting the tabernacle ready. Uh, the first thing that we're going to see is they need to stock up the tabernacle for worship. Um, the, the, this is actually a flashback to a little bit earlier. Now, I say flashback. I mean, we're talking about a span of like one month from like back in Exodus 19 to where we're at now. So it's not really far back. But there's a little bit of a flashback here where the people are bringing things to stock the tabernacle, right? You're going to build this place for the worship of God, but there's a bunch of things that have to go into it, including things for sacrifice, right? And, and certain uh, metals and different things. So in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, on that day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated it, so that's a flashback because that happened earlier in the storyline, Okay. Um, he, he consecrated it with all of its furnishings and had anointed and consecrated the altar and all its utensils. The chiefs of Israel, heads of their father's houses, who were chiefs of the tribes who were uh, over those who were listed, that's back in the census they were listed, they approached and brought their offerings before the Lord. Six wagons and 12 oxen, a wagon for every two of the chiefs. So anyway, so oxen, wagons, they bring them before the tabernacle. Verse four, the Lord said to Moses, accept these from them that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting. So again, tent of meeting focuses on the fact that tabernacle is where God's going to meet with his people. Relationship with God. That's the focus of the tabernacle. Um, they're supposed to be given to the, the Levites and the Levites are going to use it in service of the tabernacle. So they do that. What are the wagons for? Does anyone have an idea of what the wagons get used for? Yeah, they got to haul all this stuff, right? So, so the Levites are like super pumped. Uh, some of them are. The guys that have to move the inner stuff have to carry it on poles, right? Because that is uh, uniquely holy and it can't be carried on a, a cart as a right? That's not going to go well. So, um, so they have to carry it on poles. And, um, but these, the rest of them, the guys who get to carry all the, like, the, the um, outer pieces to it, the uh, poles and the, all the different things, they get to put it on these carts. Um, it's still a lot of work, I'm sure, to take down and put up, but they have carts to help them. Uh, beginning in verses 12 through verse 82, if you just scan over that real quick, uh, we're not going to read that right now. You can read it on your own, but it is very repetitious. Because it goes through all 12 tribes, and they all bring the exact same thing. Um, so, but why do that? I, th I think the point is, all 12 tribes are fully invested at this point in saying, we believe the Lord's presence among us is most important. And so we believe God's really going to dwell in this tabernacle. So we're really going to bring this stuff. This stuff isn't cheap. I mean, now it was given to them from the Egyptians as they left, but it is theirs now. And they're going to give it to use for the tabernacle. Listen, if you don't believe God is in that tabernacle, this is stupid. You're wasting stuff. All these animals, all these carts, right? So there's a sense in which they believe that God is in there and every tribe is showing they are committed to this worship of the one true God. That's why I think we, it's very clear. You can't go back later an Israelite and say, like, you, where were you guys when we were consecrating the tabernacle? Like my, my great, great granddad brought stuff. Did you, clearly, you guys really worship God? They'd be like, well, no, we, we all, this written down, we all brought stuff right? So they all bring stuff to worship God. Verse 84, uh, this was the dedication offering for the altar on the day when it was anointed from the chiefs of Israel. So they all are equally committed. They bring all these things because why? Because God's presence is the most important thing. Uh, verses one through four, we're reminded about some lamps that get set up inside the tabernacle. I think that that reminds us of God's um, countenance shining on the people of Israel and so um, I think that's probably why the lamps are, are focused on right there rather than any other parts of the tabernacle. Uh, the point is God is with them. Look at verse 89 of chapter 7. 
When Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. The mercy seat um, is referred to in other places as the footstool of God's throne. So we have God seated on his throne speaking to Moses, right? It's the place where heaven and earth meet in the sense that God is speaking to his people. So, so my point is, again, the focus is God must be with the people. And so that, that's why we keep focusing on these things. So this is a pretty amazing thing. And we need to ask ourselves, you know, are, are we thankful that God is in our midst? We don't have a tabernacle, but we are in one sense, the tabernacle in the sense that we're indwelt by the spirit. So, so do we value that the way even Israel was valuing at this moment, this physical tabernacle, right? Are we thankful that God is in us? Do we see that as the highest blessing we could have? That his countenance is smiling upon us in that he has indwelled us. Um, so too often we get worked up about other things, right? And we need to be most worked up about this. Well, the Levites are then installed in their roles officially in verses 5 through 26 of chapter 8. So chapter 8, verses 5 to 26, there's a ceremony to set them apart. Um, uh, look at verse 10. When you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. Okay, so does that remind you of anything else that's happened earlier, like in Leviticus? Uh, a, the Aaron would lay his hands on the scapegoat or yeah, that's right. something, sacrifice. So sacrifices, you often would lay your hands on them, right? Identifying with the sacrifice. Um, that's right. And then in verse 11, and Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel that they may do the service of the Lord. Uh, thankfully, the Levites are like really happy. They're not being offered as a burnt offering. They're being offered as a wave offering. So they're not being destroyed, right? But they are truly being set apart to the Lord. I think that's the point. Um, so they are being dedicated. They're being set apart. They will stand in the place of all the Israelites are, are God's. And that is shown by the fact that the firstborn belong to God out of every single Israelite person and animal. And, and the Levites are to represent the firstborn of all Israel in serving the Lord. In other words, they're, they're saying, listen, some of us have to farm, but all of us are all in on worshiping God. And so the Levites are going are gonna to lead in that. Um, let's see, verse 14, thus you shall separate the Levites from among the people of Israel and the Levites shall be mine. Look down at verse 16. For they are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel instead of all who open the womb, the firstborn of all the people of Israel. I have taken them for myself. So they represent the, the firstborn of all Israel. Uh, what are they supposed to do? Well, verses 23 through 26, they are to transport the things of the ark um, and just the tabernacle. Uh, we were given some instructions about their ages and what they're supposed to do. It says, uh, verse 23, of chapter 8, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this applies to the Levites. From 25 years old and upward, they shall come to do duty in the service of the tent of meeting. And from age of 50 years, they shall withdraw from the duty of the service and serve no more. They minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard, but they shall do no service. Thus you shall do to the Levites in assigning their duties. So it sounds like what's going on here is between ages 25 to 50, they are probably more involved in physical labor, making sure that things get moved, get set up, get done. They are also probably ministering in general to their brothers and sisters, well, I guess the men to the brothers and women to the sisters in, in the tabernacle area around that compound. They're also making sure it doesn't get defiled. Um, that's part of their job. Once you get to 50, the focus shifts more, less on the moving of the tabernacle 
right? And more on that personal ministry that's happening, including guarding the tabernacle. Um, so, you know, I think this is just an application, and there, there can be many applications. Um, but if you were to, to carry this forward, we recognize that um, in the New Testament, everyone is, a, we're part of the kingdom of priests. All of us are involved in serving the Lord. That should be true. Um, different ages and stages of life will lend themselves to different types of ministry. But there is no real full-scale retirement uh, unless, I mean, now granted, there can be certain things that physically you just get so worn out. I mean, like you may even not know who you are to some degree, right? I mean, through dementia and stuff, which by the way, really encouraging verses. One of the prophets says something like, um, though a mother forgets, may forget their nursing child, I, the Lord, will not forget you. Isn't that encouraging if you think about it for people who have dementia? Um, they may even forget the Lord to some degree, right? With, in terms of their mental, like actual physical brain organ doing that work of remembering God. But if they truly belong to God, he does not forget them right? Um, so anyway, but the point here is retirement from vocational ministry might happen, but true retirement from ministry should not be the case for a kingdom of priests, because we all represent the kingdom of priests. Um, so same thing with, with pastoral ministry, right? The uh, pastor ought not just retire, meaning um, see you guys later, I'm not doing any ministry. Now they may retire from vocational ministry, right? You, you, your physical abilities may diminish, um, but that doesn't mean there's not valuable things that are done. Like Kind of like this, there may be less of the moving around of stuff, but the experience you've gained through, assuming you've been a growing Christian your whole life, the experience you've gained in ministering to other people is invaluable to the body of Christ. And that's true for every Christian, I think. Um, so we ought not have Christians just sitting around in retirement doing nothing. Now again, I understand we all have different levels. So, you, I mean, you may, physically, you may just be way down here. That doesn't mean you're not useful to the Lord, but find ways to be useful. Prayer, checking in on people, writing cards. And if you have dementia, it's just, it really is just laying there and the Lord is being faithful to you and you're still glorifying him. But that's not true for most of us. Most of us can something, even if it's just prayer, right? Okay, um, so we ought to benefit from older saints who have much wisdom in how to apply God's word to life and in youthfulness where we have zeal and strength that may dissipate as uh, we age. Well, in chapter 9, we have, they celebrate the first uh, Passover here. I'm not going to reiterate all that happens in Passover. Hopefully you remember. If not, um, I think we taught on it. It's probably online somewhere. You can go listen to it. Um, but they, they get, uh, they're going to celebrate their first Passover. They are about a year out of having come out of, of Egypt at this point, and they're going to celebrate it. So think of how meaningful this is. Uh, they were slaves a year ago, and now they're free to worship God. Think about how meaningful this is in light of Exodus 32. They were freed and almost right away, or pretty early on, what do they do? They rebel against God, right? They worship false gods, and yet here they are still able to celebrate the Passover. That's mercy and grace, is it not? And so think about how meaningful that is. Think about how meaningful that should be for us. We celebrate communion, which is New Testament looking back on Christ, who is the Passover lamb slain for us. When we take communion, we ought to be engaged in thankfulness to the Lord for his grace and mercy. That though we have continued in sin and rebellion at times, he has not just struck us dead, right? He, his grace is unchanging in Christ. So, a lot to be encouraged by. Uh, the whole point of all this, and this is where we're going to wrap up, chapters 9 through 10, or halfway through chapter 10, is that God is going to go with them. Look at verse 15. On the day the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So this again was kind of a flashback to a little bit earlier, but the point was um, they want God's presence and that's what was being pictured here. 
God's presence. They don't just want a building for religious functions. There are a lot of buildings for religious functions that are empty and dead. They want the one true God to be among them, and that's what you're seeing happen through the, through the cloud and through the fire, right? You saw that on Mount Sinai, the cloud and the fire. God's presence visibly manifest among his people. So that is the ultimate goal, is that God to be among his people. And, um, and so they, they, the next section, they build these, uh, they make these trumpets, they make two silver trumpets, and they're used for two main purposes. The first is, and these are still related to their relationship to God, the first is to summon the people to follow God. Uh, in chapter 10, verses 2 through 3, it says, Make two silver trumpets of hammered work, you shall make them. You shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking of camp. So sometimes just for breaking camp to go. Um, but that's still following God because God, we're going to see in a second, the one who determines when they break camp is God. We're going to see that in a second. So they're supposed to follow God that way. And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to come meet with God. So it's their, it's their relationship to God, right? God has something to say to, to the people, get all the people together, okay? Uh, second, it's to act as an expression of their own prayer and, and calling out to God, their dependency on God. So this is what we read in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. When you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, that you may be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. On the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feast, and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be reminder, a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. The whole point is God is God. They want God's presence, and this is a, a, a um, audible prayer, so to speak, right? God, we need you, or God, we're thankful to you. Um, to be remembered, by the way, is not God forgot. You guys know that. The word remembered, when it gets used of God, is always referring to a, um, a looking to God, right? Depending on him, and him responding in the way he promised he would respond. That's what it means when it says they're remembered before God. It's that God is going to do what he promised to do. He's ready to act in a way that shows his promises are true. Uh, so that's what we have happening there. So two applications as we wrap up. Number one, the gospel. We see the ironic blessing. That is amazing that God's face would smile on us. We deserve judgment, right? Um, so how much more hope do we have as we read that, knowing that that promise is fully secured in Christ for us, right? We were unclean. We didn't deserve this, but Christ died for us and he made us clean. So when we read the ironic blessing, we read it with even a, a greater sense of thankfulness of, of uh, gospel reality, right? Good news reality. We think about God's smiling face upon us as his people. Second, over and over again, I didn't highlight this as we went through it, but I'm going to highlight it now. Over and over again throughout, especially one through six, but I think the whole section, uh, you see, as the Lord commanded Moses. So God says something and it says, they did it as the Lord commanded Moses. So what do we take from this? There are people set apart to God, and that's a great privilege, like we just talked about with the ironic blessing. It's also a great responsibility, right? Because God's presence is blessing and ruling. He's a king, savior and king. Both those things are true of, his, of, of who God is. And so we have a great responsibility to live by God's word. And so the question is, do we do that? Do we live by God's word? Even when God's word rubs us in a way that is against our sin nature, especially when it rubs us that way. That's really where it gets tested. You know, your, your test of obedience to God is not when you read the Bible and you're like, oh yeah, that makes total sense and I agree with it, and you do what it says. It's when you read it and you say, ugh, that's hard, right? Or you feel just shattered because you recognize how sinful you are. 
and yet you still repent and believe and trust and do what God says. That, that's, where the, that's where we really get tested. Um, and, and that doesn't mean you do it perfectly, because what I'm saying is even when you sin, you do what God says. You repent. It's not saying you never sin. It's just saying you believe God and you do what he says when you sin. You agree with him. Yes, that's sin. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Help me. Right? So do we live the way God's word says, even when, we dis- when, when, it, when it rubs us a different way or when the world around us disagrees with it and hates it? Right? Do we cling to God's word? So we're going to begin to move forward next week. Um, they're about to set out and about five minutes into the trip, they're already asking, are we there yet? Um, and uh, it's a little more significant than that, though, because they, they are, end up in rebellion probably, I say five minutes in, I don't know how far, but at some point pretty quickly on, they end up in rebellion. So we're going to move more into that rebellious side of this second gen- or the first generation. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to, um, to love your word, to keep your word, ultimately because we love you and because you have first loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.